Hey, hey, and welcome to a special best of edition of The Ben Shapiro Show. While we're in the holiday week, we'd like to bring you guys some of the terrific content over on The Ben Shapiro YouTube channel. Some things you maybe haven't seen before if you normally enjoy the show exclusively on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So today, I'm going to share some videos with you. Everything from ridiculous books like woke children's books and Barack Obama's 768-page memoir, that's volume one, to how to debunk the left's claims on income inequality and systemic racism. I hope you enjoy. I also hope you'll subscribe over at youtube.com slash Ben Shapiro for even more exciting videos we've got planned for 2021. Without further ado, let's get into our first video. Alrighty, today we are going to be reviewing a children's book by noted cult leader and fascist Ibram X. Kendi. I say that he's a cult leader because he actually says things like, if you don't listen to me and repeat what I say, then you are a racist and you can only be cleansed of your racism by paying me $20,000 to do a diversity session about how you're a racist. And also I say he's a fascist because he has literally proposed in writing that there be a federal department of anti-racism to strike down, I kid you not, any law that has a disparate impact, meaning that if any group does worse under a law than any other group, then the law can be struck down by the Department of Anti-Racism, which is called every single law ever in the history of humanity because you can draw a line down the middle of a room without regard to race, age, or anything, and you will end up with disparate impact on the people on either side of the line. Okay, so the guy is just a charlatan, he is a fraud, and he is highly sought after for diversity speaking initiatives at various corporations seeking to avoid liability. Okay, so he wrote a children's book, like a book for kids, so he can indoctrinate small babies in this book. So it's called Anti-Racist Baby. Looks excellent. Here we go. Okay, so the book begins with dedications. So Ibram Kendi writes like a nice dedication, presumably to his kid, Imani. And then the illustrator writes this. To all the young people whose own imaginations are unbound by the imaginations of state violence and white supremacy and the power we hold to build a world that is anti-racist, I believe in us. Yes, all your hope lies in the ability of a small child who has not yet been indoctrinated into the institutions of evil, but who unfortunately has no ability to wipe their own ass. Anti-racist baby is bred, not born. Okay, so how are we going to indoctrinate your child today? Because your child is going to be bred. Babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. There is no neutrality. Um, what if you're just not racist? Well, according to Ibram Kendi, seriously, he actually believes that if you say that you're not racist and you don't do anything racist, you're actually still racist because you're not anti-racist. Anti-racist means that you believe that every institution that has a disparate impact needs to be torn to the ground. This is actual theory. So babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. So either you indoctrinate them to believe what Ibram Kendi believes, or you are, right, he eliminated one of those options now. If you don't do an Ibram, if you're not anti-racist, like Ibram Kendi, that means your baby's a racist. Take these nine steps to make equity a reality. Ooh, I'm too excited. One, open your eyes to all skin colors. Anti-racist baby learns all the colors, not because race is true. If you claim to be colorblind, you deny what's right in front of you. Okay, so, um... That is so self-refuting. I mean, like completely self-refuting, right? He says that you have to learn everybody's color because race is not true. But if race is not true, why would you bother to learn everybody's color? Like who cares, right? Either you're a racial essentialist, in which case you should know everybody's color because there are racial differences that are essential, which is racist. Or you should learn everybody's racial color for no reason. He says, if you claim to be colorblind, you deny what's right in front of you. No. What you deny is Ibram Kendi's premise, which is that you are, in fact, a racist unless Ibram Kendi says that you are otherwise, deems you otherwise. Two, use your words to talk about race. No one will see racism if we only stay silent. If we don't name racism, it won't stop being so violent. Yes, what we need is two-year-olds deeming things racist. That sounds great. 
I mean, as, as a person with small children, what I need is my children running around on the streets calling things racist when they don't literally know how to wipe their own asses. Makes perfect sense to me. Also, no one will see racism if we only stay silent. I, I'm, I'm confused just because I feel like we will still see racism. We just won't be speaking about it. Now, you want to make the case that we should speak out against racism. That sounds good. I'm, I'm all for it. But the problem is, again, he defines racism as anything Ibram Kendi doesn't like. Okay. Three, point at policies as the problem, not people. Ah, there we go. There we go. See, here you are now removing the definition of racism. You're teaching kids that you don't actually have to be racist in order to be racist, right? Instead of your kid, you're teaching kids they have to point out racism, but in order for them to point out racism, they don't have to spot a racist or racist intent. All they have to do is find something they don't like and call it racist. He says, some people get more while others get less because policies don't always grant equal access. There is a person who is catching butterflies in the net and one butterfly is not caught. This means that this person is racist against this particular type of butterfly. Now, we have no idea why this person is catching that particular type of butterfly. Maybe they need to do research on that type. It's a butterfly, by the way, not a human. Okay, number one. Number two, maybe it's because those butterflies are easier to catch and this person catches butterflies for a living. Maybe the person is evil and really, really hates blue butterflies. We don't know. But we can simply assume that because there is a disparity, discrimination has taken place. This is what we are teaching small children because everything is incredibly stupid. Four, shout. There's nothing wrong with the people. Even though all races are not treated the same, we are all human, anti-racist baby can proclaim. So the point here, right, and the, the subtle point here is that what he has said, and this is what Ibram Kendi has said in his writing for adults, which is also written like it is for children because the, only idiots would believe it. And children are, are basically small adults who are idiots. When he says there's nothing wrong with the people, what he means is if there's any disparity in outcome, you cannot attribute that to the individual decisions of the people, or you have to attribute it to the policies. So if you have one person who makes a bunch of bad decisions and ends up impoverished, or somebody robs a bank and goes to jail, it's not because the person made a bad decision to rob a bank and then ended up in jail. There's nothing wrong with the person, you see. It was the policies that drove him to do that, right? This is what we are supposed to be teaching children, which by the way, is a great message for kids. I think a best, the best message for kids who lack a sense of personal responsibility in the first place and are really selfish little creatures. Kids are innocent, but they are not good. Anybody who's ever had a kid can tell you this, right? Kids can be horrific. Kids can be cruel to one another. Kids can be violent and brutal. If a four-year-old had the body of a 40-year-old, the world would be over, right? Four-year-olds just walk around hitting each other and screaming and pulling things down and wrecking things. Kids are wonderful. I have three of them, okay? They're wonderful. They're the joys of my life. They are not good. They're innocent. Okay, you have to teach them to be good. That's what civilization is for. Teaching a child that individual action does not matter, right? That there's nothing wrong with the people, meaning there's nothing wrong with your individual choice. No matter what your choice is, it should result in the same outcome. Is it literally a way to bring up sociopathic children? Okay, five, celebrate all our differences. Anti-racist baby doesn't see certain groups as better or worse. Anti-racist baby loves a world that's truly diverse. Okay, so is he now claiming that we should see people as individuals? No, that's silly. Of course not. What he means is that no matter what choices anybody makes, we are not allowed to say choices are better or worse. He doesn't mean that we should see every individual without regard to skin color. We should see every individual based on content of character. He originally disowned that in principle number one, as you will recall. No, what he's actually saying is that individual choice literally should never be discriminated against. Okay, now here's my deal. I do discriminate based on individual choice, not based on skin color, not based on immutable characteristic, based on individual choice. If you choose to eat nails, that is a worse choice than not choosing to eat nails. Okay, I discriminate 
based on that choice, as would any sentient human being. But he is saying that you shouldn't do that, right? You should, every, every choice is equally good. And only cultural, only cultural racism is what causes you to think that some choices are better than others. If some people choose to eat nails, that's just a different culture, right? Six, knock down the stack of cultural blocks. Anti-racist baby appreciates how groups speak, dance, and create as they choose. Anti-racist baby welcomes all groups voicing their unique views. Okay, well, I just have a question. Are there any limits on this behavior, right? Because you're supposed to knock down the stack of cultural blocks, which means that presumably every cultural behavior is a manifestation of systems of power. Are there any, but there are no bad choices, right? This is what we're learning here. Anti-racist baby appreciates how groups speak, dance, and create. How about what if they're like burning down cities? What if they're like riots in the streets? What if people are hitting each other with baseball bats? Like, are we supposed to appreciate that? It's just sort of a cultural difference. Are we supposed to just think that if you make bad decisions, that's just cultural difference? And it's not a matter of unique viewpoint, right? It, unless he includes a non-harm principle here, this is a bad principle. Seven, confess when being raised. Ah, confess, confess, baby. Small baby, confess your sins. Teach your two-year-old to confess to being racist. Okay, I, I have a four-year-old. I can't even get my four-year-old to confess that he drew on the counter with a Sharpie. Okay, are, are you kidding me? Yeah, you're for, confess. Any, anybody who actually teaches this crap to their kids should be brought up on charges of child abuse, seriously. Seven, confess when being racist. Nothing disrupts racism more than when we confess the racist ideas we sometimes express. Okay, but again, he is defining racist as anything he doesn't like. So this is where the cult leader part comes in. He gets to determine if something is racist. If you refuse to confess your racism along those lines, this is because you are a racist and you must confess, confess, and give Ibram Kendi $20,000 for a diversity training session. Eight, grow to be an anti-racist. Anti-racist baby is always learning, changing, and growing. Anti-racist baby stays curious about all people and isn't all-knowing. Well, unless anti-racist baby grows up to be Ibram Kendi, then he knows everything. And he gets to change the standards, just willy-nilly at random, depending on what he deems racist that day. What a, what a wonderful book. What a wonderful book. Nine, believe we shall overcome racism. But wait a second. I've been told that we can never overcome racism. Seriously, you, you, there's no ability to overcome racism. You can never fully do the work, is what Ibram Kendi says. We can only pursue the utopian goal. There's no point where utopia actually manifests. It doesn't happen. Because after all, we have to continue seeing each other as groups. And we have to create laws in which the outcome is the same for everybody, which is never going to happen ever. So you actually can never overcome racism because, again, he defines racism as whatever he doesn't. I assume Ibram Kendi will always have things he doesn't like. So the definition will continue changing forever. But believe we can overcome. Anti-racist baby is filled with the power to transcend, my friend, and doesn't judge a book by its cover, but reads until the end. Oh, uh, we did. We got through it, guys. We got through it together. What a beautiful bunch of absolutely garbage horse for children. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is, yeah. This is learning time. Dear parents and caregivers, it is critical we begin explicit conversations about race and racism with our children from a young age. Just as we teach our kids to be kind even before they fully understand what it means to be kind, we should teach our kids to be anti-racist even before they fully understand what it means to be anti-racist. Those are not the same thing. Teaching a kid to be kind means not hitting other kids. It means being kind of nice. Teaching a kid to be anti-racist means that you have to indoctrinate them that all institutions in society are suffused with white supremacy and exploitation. I feel like that concept not only is a bullshit, but it's kind of hard to convey to a two-year-old. Ask your child to describe the people in their friend group and yours. It is a fallacy that children are colorblind. Help your child explicitly name the race of the people around them so they understand it is not insulting or harmful to do so. We want to normalize discussions about race and remove the stigma around these conversations. 
Okay, now I honestly don't have a problem with, with my kids saying there's a black guy who cares, and that's true. Okay, it is important for children to name the race of the people around them so you can ask them what they think about those different races, why they think those things, and instruct them on how to understand racial difference as an imagined construct, but one with very real consequences. You want to teach them this. You don't want to assume children are a blank slate. This leaves room for racist societal messages to shape their understanding of racism instead. Okay, what if I don't feel like grilling my kid on what they think of various races because kids are dumb? What if instead I just say, right, there's a black guy. Right, there's a Latino guy. Right, there's a lady. Like, what's the problem with that? And then if my kid ever expressed something like, are women allowed to be X, Y, or Z? You say, of course women are allowed to be X, Y, or Z. Like, that, that's just normal parenting. But the idea is you're supposed to grill your kid for their racist internals, and then you're supposed to re-educate them, like, right away. Help children understand that racist policies are, pro are the problem, not people. Ah, here, here's where we really go. You and your child can reflect on the racial makeup of your school or neighborhood. Are they truly diverse? Or do you live in a neighborhood or attend a school that is segregated? Help children understand that this is a result of racist policy. And talk about how this affects which schools may receive more resources over others. Okay, so I'm supposed to take my six-year-old to school and be like, oh, that's because the administrators are racist, and historically there was redlining in the neighborhood. Or I could, you know, assume that the kid is six. Like, it's fine to talk about all this stuff. I'm just wondering why it's necessary to do it with a four-year-old. Challenge the idea that all people are treated the same. It is common to share lessons like be kind to everyone with kids, but this reinforces the idea that racist acts are only carried out on an individual level and ignores that all people are not given the same access to necessary resources. Okay, so why should I not? I'm confused. I shouldn't be telling my kid to be kind to everybody. Should I be telling my kid to be an asshole to everybody? I guess I could, but I feel like that makes the world worse. It says, although we might teach kids anyone can do anything, we also have to teach them that racist barriers exist that stop us all from being truly free. Understanding this is the first step in helping to change it. Being kind does not mean that we avoid seeing race, but that we celebrate racial differences. Okay, that is a completely disjointed statement from the rest of that paragraph. But the idea that I can't teach my kid that anybody can do anything because I have to teach them that if they're a girl, if, if, I, if I teach my, my oldest daughter, actually, there are structural barriers to your success. What do you think that teaches kids? What you're actually teaching kids is not to try. That's what you're teaching kids. The reality is that in America, it's a free country. For the most part, anybody can do anything. That does not mean that there are not barriers in everybody's life. It does mean that we should work to alleviate those barriers. But I'm not supposed to teach kids that. I'm supposed to teach them the importance of the barriers, but not the importance of individual choice. This is bad parenting. Remember to talk to your kids about how people aren't just racist or anti-racist, but rather how their actions can be racist or anti-racist. Ah, so again, once more, it is not people that are the problem. It is merely the actions that are put upon them by society. Kids might understand how this is similar to when we say we don't consider them to be a bad kid when they do something wrong but we must acknowledge that they make a bad choice. They have the opportunity to make a better choice the next time because we know that identity is not fixed. Being anti-racist is about what we do, not who we are, but hold up. I was told that individual choice doesn't matter. Seriously, he's now saying that you can make the choice to be racist or anti-racist, but I was told that I'm not allowed to blame people for their choices or to credit people for their choices. Society made me the way I am, so shut up, Ibram Kendi. Right, seriously, society shaped all of the forces around me. I'm not responsible for my own decisions, except apparently I am. I get to decide whether to pay Ibram Kendi 20 grand a pop. So. Good stuff right there. Thank you, Ibram Kendi, for this educational tour through stupidity. That, that was just, that was wonderful. I'm so glad that we read Anti-Racist Baby by Ibram Kendi. If you read this to a child, your child is seven times stupider and 23,000 times a worse person than if they never read this book. Okay, you should not read this book. This is a terrible book. I've explained to you step-by-step step why this is a terrible book. And there you have it, the recap of one ridiculous children's book. But now it's time to get into a ridiculous book for adults. Yes, I am talking about Barack Obama's 768-page memoir, and that's only the first volume. Let's jump into it.
let's talk about the fact that this is Barack Obama's Democratic Party. So the battle inside the Democratic Party right now between the so-called moderates, the Joe Manchins of the party, or even the Joe Bidens of the party against the sort of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez squad, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders wing of the party, that battle is over. And the reason that the battle is over is because there is no immune response to the argument that is being made by people like Ocasio-Cortez, the, the people like Rashida Tlaib, the people like Elizabeth Warren, which is that the system itself is deeply corrupt. The reason there is no immune response is because Barack Obama killed the immune response. Hey, the great lie of Barack Obama's tenure is that he was a unifying president who believed in foundational American principles. He absolutely did not. The 2012 election, I think, broke the country because in 2008, Barack Obama was elected along the lines of, I am here to unify. I'm here, red states, no blue states, United States. We've had a lot of racial conflict in this country in my own person. I have felt that pain, but now I am a symbol of hope. Right? That, that was his whole 2008 campaign. And then come 2012, everybody who opposed him was a racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe. If you didn't like him, it was because you had not uncovered the bigotry in your own heart. And in fact, his agenda was about a vision for the country that may have moved beyond the founders. Okay, so now he has a memoir out. And the memoir is making pretty damned clear where he comes from. Okay, the memoir is not vague. It's, it's, it is slightly coded. When I say it's slightly coded, I mean that he pays sometimes lip service to what he says are American principles that are actually not foundational American founding principles. But Barack Obama is the, he is the pathway for the Democratic Party moving forward. That, that's what they think. This is what the Democratic Party thinks. And this is why the future of the Democratic Party looks a lot more like the squad and a lot less like Joe Manchin, which is why you have that, that particular tweet from AOC glaring at Joe Manchin. Right? That is the future of the Democratic Party. It's radicals all the way down. Okay, so Barack Obama releases a 768-page volume one of his memoir. First of all, for anybody who believes that Donald Trump has narcissistic personality disorder, let me introduce you to a man named Barack Obama. Nobody has ever loved Barack Obama more than Barack Obama loves Barack Obama. Jeffrey Tubin doesn't love Jeffrey Tubin as much as Barack Obama loves Barack Obama. Okay, it is, it is absurd how much Barack Obama loves himself from Barack Obama. The man has written at this point, this is his third memoir, and volume one is longer, as I have said, than the five books of Moses. Not kidding. In the original Hebrew, this is a 768-page memoir. That's volume one. Okay, he didn't accomplish anything when he was, he did Obamacare, and then he had a bunch of executive orders, and he undermined the fundamental unity of the country. So I guess there, was, there are a few things that he did, but is that worthy of like 1,500 pages? Maybe he'll just continue writing these memoirs forever. I don't know Winston Churchill wrote this many memoirs, and Winston Churchill was actually an important human. I don't think that Barack Obama is a particularly important human in the vast panorama of American politics, except for destructive things that he has done to the body politic. Okay, but that doesn't stop the media from just drooling over him. The New York Times book review, Barack Obama is as fine a writer as they come. It is not merely this book avoids being ponderous as might be expected, even forgiven of a hefty memoir, but that it is nearly always pleasurable to read sentence by sentence, the prose gorgeous in places, the detail granular and vivid. Jeffrey Tubin writing that right there. I mean, that, that is a lot of, lot of book review journalism going on right there. Okay, so what does Barack Obama actually say in his memoirs. Well, we have an early excerpt from The Atlantic, another place that is basically a Barack Obama stenographer. Now, Jeffrey Goldberg famously was sort of the place that Barack Obama would go to vomit all of his bile at his enemies, and Jeffrey Goldberg would just sit there and write it and nod along. In fact, Jeffrey Goldberg was so much of a tool of the Obama administration that Ben Rhodes, who was a fiction writer who cr helped craft the Iran deal, the garbage Iran deal, openly stated that he used Jeffrey Goldberg as a, as a stenographer for his, idiotic, for his idiotic politics. Anyway, The Atlantic, which fired Kevin Williamson for the sin of being pro-life, but obviously will print nearly anything. Ibram Kendi writes over there. They, they printed some of Barack Obama's memoir. Here, is the, here is, are the paragraphs that, that, st that stick out the most. Okay, so 
the, the theme of Barack Obama's presidency and his life is that he is disappointed in you. You get this from Michelle Obama too. He's disappointed in you and he's disappointed in American democracy because what he wants from you and from American democracy is a radical remaking. He wants a radical reshifting. He talks about the contest between Democrats and Republicans. And of course, it goes to this deeper point that Democrats have fallen headfirst into, which is that if you do not believe in the Democrats' radical agenda on every score, it's because you're a racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe. This is Barack Obama, a twice elected president by wide margins both times, talking about how the American people are garbage. He says, this contest is not new. Right, right now, we are seeing a crisis rooted in a fundamental contest between two opposing visions of what America is and what it should be. A crisis that has left the body politic divided, angry and mistrustful, and has allowed for an ongoing breach of institutional norms, procedural safeguards, and the adherence to basic facts both Republicans and Democrats once took for granted. First of all, being lectured on basic facts by Captain, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, is a somewhat galling. But Barack Obama says this contest is not new, of course. In many ways, it has defined the American experience. It's embedded in founding documents that could simultaneously proclaim all men equal and yet count a slave as three-fifths of a man. It finds expression in our earliest court opinions, as when the Chief Justice of the United States bluntly explains to Native Americans that their tribe's rights to convey property aren't enforceable because the court of the conqueror has no capacity to recognize the just claims of the conquered. It's a contest that's been fought on the fields of Gettysburg and Appomattox, but also in the halls of Congress. On a bridge in Selma, Alabama, across the vineyards of California, and down the streets of New York, a contest fought by soldiers, but more often by union organizers, suffragists, Pullman porters, student leaders, waves of immigrants, and LGBTQ activists armed with nothing more than picket signs, pamphlets, or a pair of marching shoes. At the heart of this long-running battle is a simple question. Do we care to match the reality of America to its ideals? Do we really believe that our notions of self-government and individual freedom, equality of opportunity and equality before the law apply to everybody? Or are we instead committed in practice, if not in statute, to reserving those things for a privileged few, right? Again, if you don't believe in all the radical policy prescriptions of Barack Obama, then you believe in reserving freedom and prosperity and equality of opportunity to a privileged few. Right? You're a bad person. Not only are you a bad person, it turns out, um, you might be a racist and also the founding fathers might be a racist. So he, he says, I'm all in favor of founding principles, even though I might not really believe that the founding principles are in fact the founding principles. Right? Here, here's where we get into the radical 1619 Project territory of Barack Obama's thought. He says, I recognize there are those who believe it's time to discard the myth that an examination of America's past and an even cursory glance at today's headlines show that this nation's ideals have always been secondary to conquest and subjugation, a racial caste system, and rapacious capitalism, and that to pretend otherwise is to be complicit in a game that was rigged from the start. And I confess, there have been times during the course of writing my book, as I've reflected on my presidency and all that's happened since, when I've had to ask myself whether I was too tempered in speaking the truth as I saw it, too cautious in either word or deed, convinced as I was that by appealing to what Lincoln called the better, better angels of our nature, I stood a greater chance of leading us in the direction of the America we've been promised. I don't know. He doesn't know. You know, he doesn't know. He doesn't know if these were actually, maybe the myth, maybe the myth is wrong. Maybe America was founded in racist, sexism, bigotry, homophobia, exploitation. And then he says, what I can say for certain is I'm not yet ready to abandon the possibility of America. Oh, so, so again, you guys, you, you just keep disappointing Barack Obama. But here's the thing. In order to not disappoint Barack Obama, what you have to do is you just have to concede. That's what you need to do. You need to concede to all of his radical opinions. And if you don't, it's because you want a worse America. You're a bad person. Okay, this is AOC kind of language. This is not the language of unity. This is not the language of discussion. This is not the language of a common vision for the future. This is the language of radicalism. Barack Obama speaks it fluently. He's able to cover it in a way that the radicals and the squad aren't, but he is just, he's every bit as radical as they are. He just gets, it just takes him a little bit longer to word his way around it. Now that we've reviewed some of the more ridiculous books out there, I'd like to finish off today by recapping how to debunk the left's claims on income inequality and systemic racism. Let's get into it. 
Jordan in Utah. You're on the Ben Shapiro Show. Go for it, Jordan. Hi, Ben. Thanks for taking my call. So I had a question for you again about systemic racism. Um, so I had this experience as a missionary in Connecticut um, on the drive between West Hartford to Hartford, mm-hmm. where everyone went from, it's actually Hartford to West Hartford, where everyone went from usually poor, not white, and then two blocks later, like like mini mansions everywhere, everyone's white. Um, and I feel like left has done a really good job kind of taking this kind of general feeling of like, oh, look, there's, you know, people are poor and no one's white over there. And then two blocks later, like everyone's white, everyone's rich. They've, they've done a really good job of kind of taking that med- that message and turning it into, into systemic racism, right? Yes. So I was wondering if you thought there's anything conservatives could do as far as messaging to – to, to kind of still address the problem, but but do it in a, in a conservative way where like... Sure. So like I think... Free... I, yeah, so Jordan, I think that there, there's a, a category error that has been actively promulgated by the media and by the political left. And, and you mentioned the category error here. And that is, there are two cross-cutting distinctions that we've mentioned in this conversation already. The cross-cutting distinction between poor and rich and the cross-cutting distinction between black and white. One of these right. is not the cause, right? So So what the left has done is they've said, that the distinctions are essentially the same. They've conflated the two. Poor equals black, rich equals white, right? This is something that Joe Biden himself has said. Joe Biden gaffed a couple months ago, and he said, you know, there's a difference between being rich and being black, right? Which is is an incredible statement. There are lots of rich black people in America, and there are lots of poor white people in America. So so because black people in the United States are disproportionately poorer than white people in the United States, although... Asian people in the United States are disproportionately richer than, than either one of those groups, by the way, because right. people conflate the cross-cutting distinctions between they say, because they basically argue that poor equals black and rich equals white. First of all, that's kind of racist because it ain't true. But two, it's actually, yeah. it's ignoring the real problem, which is how do we get poor people to be richer? Right? The question is not, did those rich people steal the money from the poor people? Because they didn't. The question, is, and, and the question isn't, no. are there legal structures in place that keep the poor people poor? Because there aren't. The real question is, and, and the question isn't even what happened in history to make certain areas lower income versus certain areas higher income. The question is, what can we do today to make poor people richer? And this is why you've seen, it's really fascinating. You've seen a gap open up, or at least there was a gap until very recently, between sort of the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, the, the sort of socialist wing of the Democratic Party, and the racial justice warrior wing of the Democratic Party. Because Bernie sounds kind of more like a, a Republican when he suggests that what we're really talking about is the distinction between rich and poor. Right, his solutions are wrong, but he says what we're really talking about is a class issue here. And then there are Democrats who say it's not really a class issue, it's a race, race issue. But Bernie is right that it's more of a class issue, right? It is more about like poor versus rich. And then the question becomes, what decisions can we incentivize in people's lives so that poor areas become richer? What can we do to gentrify those areas? And one of the things that you will see from members of the political left is an objection to many of the steps that need to be taken in order to make it easier for, for poor people to become rich. So this is what you see with the insane stuff from the National Museum of African American History and Culture, where they say that punctuality, cause and effect, that, that the scientific method, these are white people things. No, those are, those are ways that you get successful, right? Being a, being a diligent person is how you become successful in the United States, regardless of your race. It's why when you see the left saying, we need to get rid of the police, you think to yourself, okay, that is making it worse for poor people, regardless of race. It's making it significant, which is why, by the way, 81% of black Americans say they want at least the same number of police in their neighborhoods or more police in their neighborhoods. So the, so it, I think the human beings have an innate tendency to make distinctions based on visible differences, like differences between race. 
But the actual visible differences that should matter are the differences between, for example, rich and poor, how many cops are on the streets, what are the housing conditions like? How do we get more businesses into these neighborhoods? What are the crime rates like? Right? If you want to make it so that poorer areas in, in Hartford are more like richer areas, then how do you make it so that poorer areas are more like richer areas rather than assuming that the white people are keeping the black people down or that some sort of de facto segregation is the actual rationale here instead of individual decision-making that can actually be cured? You can't, you can't really cure the nature of human sin. What you can do is incentivize people to make good decisions and make it easier for them, them to make good decisions by vitiating the obstacles to cause and effect. What crime does, for example, is it vitiates. What what crime does is it it, it creates an obstacle to cause and effect, right? You're working hard, you're doing your best, and you can't get any customers to come in your store because they're afraid they're going to get robbed, right? You're doing what you can, and the system has not provided protection for your property. So what do we need to do? We need to provide protection for your property so that cause and effect are now effectuated. So is there a message Republicans should be pushing because a lot of it's just like, you know, Democrats are wrong, but I feel like Democrats are winning the messaging on this. Well, I think Democrats are winning the messaging, mainly because most Americans see disproportionate differences between groups, and they immediately assume that that is due to inequity, that it is due to some sort of discrimination. So the, the conflation between right. disparity and discrimination is a very easy one. It's an easy mental trick to play. But the truth is that there are disparities between every group, right? As I mentioned earlier, Asian Americans have a much higher household income than white Americans. That doesn't mean that Asian Americans are discriminating against white Americans or that the system is built to benefit Asian Americans. It means that there are many areas of the United States where people individually need to make better decisions, where governments need to make better decisions about how to incentivize good decision-making and prevent crime. And yes, put criminals in jail, and that would be a good thing. The same leftists who are, who are claiming that we need better opportunities in poor minority neighborhoods are opposing gentrification. Gentrification is bringing more money into those communities. You can't have it both ways. Yeah, cool. Jordan, really appreciate the call. And thanks for the missionary work. That's obviously a very, very good thing. Steve in Chicago, you're on the Venture Bureau Show. Go for it, Steve. Hey, Ben. Uh, Several years ago, you were doing a live show in Seattle with Black Lives Matter activists. It's It's a popular YouTube clip. When asked about whether racism is a driving factor in income inequality, you responded, because it has nothing to do with race and everything to do with culture. Some of your fellow panelists initially started laughing, but you continued with your response and they, they had no answer. So I wanted to ask you, could you define culture? What elements of culture in the black community are driving income inequality? And is it possible to discuss culture honestly without being branded a racist since race and culture are so deeply interrelated? So first of all, I don't think that race and culture have to be interrelated, nor, nor should they be. I mean, I wouldn't say that it is, quote unquote, black culture to not value education. There are plenty of black Americans who value education extraordinarily highly. I think that there's, there, there are certain pathologies that exist in poor communities, black or white, that are common across those communities. Now, they may not exist in the same proportions in those communities, but that has nothing to, to do with race and everything to do with culture, right? There, there are areas of white Appalachia where education is not valued particularly highly. J.D. Vance talks about this in, in Hillbilly Elegy. The, the pathologies of poverty that exist cross-racially are the same. And then it's just a question of, of how often they exist in particular communities, regardless of race. So pathologies of poverty include not valuing, valuing education enough such that your kids are not spending a lot of time on homework or not having fathers in the home, such that you have two parents who are available to help read with your kids. Pathologies of poverty exist high, include high crime, include, again, lack of fathers in the home means that very often young men tend to congregate in gangs, right? Those are pathologies of poverty. Right. All of those pathologies are not unique to the black community. They may exist disproportionately in particular black communities, but that doesn't mean that that's because of the race. 
The bottom line is that the, the recipe for success is the same for everyone in the United States. You make responsible decisions. You don't have babies out of wedlock. You finish high school. If you go to college, try to major in, in something where you're actually going to make money on the other end. Like, for example, you'll see people cite statistics that black college graduates don't earn as much as white college graduates. Well, that doesn't adjust for major. If you major in, in a soft study, a liberal arts study, you're not going to make as much money as if you major in STEM, which is why white college graduates earn less than Asian American college graduates, for example. Right? They're just decisions. And so what I said in that clip, and it's right, obviously, which is why you see the, the people who I'm talking to, one is a member of the local NAACP, one's a member of the Seattle Stranger. Right? You see these people go from laughing to being kind of chastened a little bit in the clip. Is It is not arguable that pathologies of poverty like single motherhood have nothing to do with race. When the single motherhood rate in the black community went from 20% in 1960 to well over 70% today, that is going to have some significant downstream effects. When the high school dropout rate differential between high school black students and high school white students is significant, that's going to have significant downstream effect. What does that have to do with race? The answer is it doesn't have anything to do with race. Okay, so I think the way to discuss it is to point out over and over and over again that this is not a racial distinction. This is a, this is a distinction between decisions that individuals make and can make. And our job in terms of public policy is to incentivize people to make the right decisions, not to incentivize them to make the wrong decisions by, for example, compensating them for making the wrong decisions, which is what welfare policy did in the 1960s and helped exacerbate the problems of single motherhood in black communities, by the way, as well as white communities. The single motherhood rate in the white community was 5% in 1960. Today, it's well in excess of 40%. Well, Ben, thank you for that. I mean, uh, I think the thing that is a little frustrating when I hear Democrats talking is that they refuse to address the culture issue whatsoever. They, they immediately want to go to social programs and not discuss culture. And I just think culture is such an important element that does drive income inequality. I'm just surprised they won't do it. I mean, all we mean by culture when we say culture is just decisions made by people. And when we say culture, it means like a disproportionate number of bad decisions or good decisions made by a particular group of people. And again, that is not that's why I'm not going to say it's, quote unquote, black culture on education, that that black people don't care about education. That's not true. It depends on which areas you're talking about. So, again, that has nothing to do with race. And, And saying that things have nothing to do with race is a pretty good way of explaining that things have nothing to do with race. It's hard to be branded a racist when you keep saying over and over things have nothing to do with race that don't have to do with race. Really appreciate the call. Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll be back on air on January 4th. In the meantime, head on over to dailywire.com slash subscribe to not only listen, but also to watch every single episode of The Ben Shapiro Show we had in 2020. See you next year. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. PureTalk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So... I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.